Welcome to another episode of the ongoing history of movies and television. Take a seat, grab some popcorn, and journey with me to explore the amazing world of movies and television. Welcome back to another episode of the ongoing history of movies and television. I'm your host, Matthias, back with more of what I hope is interesting content for you guys. This week, we'll dive into the influence of Hollywood, as well as the criteria for being called a blockbuster, and we'll touch on the role of the independent and foreign films. So let's get this real rolling. While it may seem like major movie studios are making heavy profits, movie making today is a much riskier, less profitable enterprise than it was in the studio system era. In the days of the vertically integrated studio system, filmmaking was a streamlined process, neither as risky nor as expensive as it is today. When producers, directors, screenwriters, art directors, actors, cinematographers, technical staff, all of them, all under contract with one studio, turnaround time for the casting and production of a film was often as little as three to four months. Beginning in the 1970s, after the decline of the studio system, the production costs for films increased dramatically, forcing the studios to invest more of their budgets in marketing efforts that would generate pre-sales. The costs of making a movie are exponentially higher than they were in the 1930s, when a film could be made for around $300,000. By comparison, the average cost of a major studio movie was about $65 million dollars, in 2006, and that number has risen dramatically since then. We can see it in the movies that are produced today. Some of the most expensive films each year commonly cost more than $200 million to make, with a few films crossing over the $300 million mark. The massive budgets required for the global marketing of a film are huge financial gambles. In fact, most movies cost the studios much more to market and produce, upwards of $100 million, than their box office returns ever generate. With such high stakes, studios have come to rely on the handful of blockbuster films that keep them afloat. Studios know they can rely on certain predictable elements to draw in audiences, so they tend to invest the majority of their budgets on movies that fit the blockbuster mold. Remakes, because the world really needed that many different Batmans. Movies with sequel setups like Pirates of the Caribbean, whose franchise has grossed over $4.5 billion worldwide. Or films based on best-selling novels like Harry Potter, which has grossed $8.5 billion at the box office alone, and around $25 billion if you include the books and merch. Or comic books like Marvel's entire cinematic universe, which has grossed around $17.5 billion worldwide. All of these are safer bets than original screenplays or movies with experimental themes. James Cameron has been one of the directors with mega blockbusters under his belt. Cameron's Titanic from 1997 saw much success largely because it was based on a well-known story, contained predictable plot points, and was designed to appeal to the widest possible range of audience demographics with romance, action, and expensive special effects, all meeting the blockbuster standard on several levels. The film's astronomical $200 million production cost was a huge gamble, and 
it required the backing of not one, but two studios, Paramount and 20th Century Fox. Titanic, which was a mega hit and remained the highest grossing movie for many, many years until it was dethroned by another James Cameron movie, Avatar. Released in 2009, Avatar cost close to $340 million, making it one of the most expensive films of all time. But you're asking yourself, where does such a ridiculous budget go? Well, I'll tell you. In the case of Avatar, the film costs $190 million to make and around $150 million to market. Of that $190 million production budget, part goes toward above-the-line cost. Those are costs that are negotiated before filming begins, and part to the below-the-line cost, those that are generally fixed. Above-the-line costs include screenplay rights, salaries for the writer, producer, director, actors, and salaries for the directors, actors, producers, assistants. Below-the-line costs include the salaries for non-starring cast members and technical crew, use of technical equipment, travel, location, studio rental, and catering because food is fuel for great acting. Luckily for Paramount and 20th Century Fox, their gamble paid off immensely because Avatar has gone on to gross almost $3 billion at the box office. Now, blockbusters like this don't just come around that often, and throwing tons of money at a film doesn't always end in success. Just as we have big box office successes, we also have big box office flops. Back in 1980, when United Artists was a major Hollywood studio, its epic western Heaven's Gate cost nearly six times its original budget, $44 million instead of the proposed $7.6 million. The movie which bombed at the box office was the largest failure in film history at the time, losing at least $40 million and forcing the studio to be bought out by MGM. In 2005, the movie Sahara, which had an initial budget of $80 million, that eventually doubled to a rumor $160 million due to complications with filming in Morocco and numerous problems with the script, lost $78 million, making it one of the biggest financial flops in film history. In 2013, Disney was hurting on the release of John Carter and really needed a win and they believed The Lone Ranger, starring Johnny Depp, would be that winner. However, with a production budget of a whopping $250 million, plus $150 million for marketing, it was estimated the movie needed to make around $650 million worldwide just to break even. The movie would end up grossing $260 million, making it back-to-back -back massive losses for Disney. If you'd like to hear more about some of these fantastic flops, you'll want to check out our next discussion episode where we will dive into some of the biggest box office flops and talk about which ones we feel were treated harshly or reasons as to why they flopped and which ones we enjoyed regardless of the public reception. Now, while the blockbuster still drives the industry, the formula used by most of Hollywood films of the 1980s, 1990s, and into the early 2000s open doors for independent films to make their mark on the industry. Audience favorites like Fight Club from 1999, Lost in Translation 2003, and Juno from 2007 
provided moviegoers with a change from standard Hollywood blockbusters. Look, few independent films ever reach mainstream audiences, and during the 1980s, a number of developments in that decade paved the way for their increased popularity in the coming years. The Sundance Film Festival, which began in Park City, Utah in 1980, as a way for independent filmmakers to showcase their work, has grown to garner more public attention for these films, and now often represents an opportunity for independents to find market backing by larger studios. In 1989, Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, videotape, released by Miramax, was the first independent to break out of the art house circuit and find its way into the multiplexes. In the 1990s and 2000s, independent directors like the Coen brothers, Wes Anderson, and Quentin Tarantino made significant contributions to cinema. Tarantino's 1994 film Pulp Fiction garnered attention for its experimental narrative structure, witty dialogue, and indifferent approach to violence. It was the first independent film to break $100 million at the box office, proving that there is still room in the market for movies produced outside of the big six studios. There's even room to accommodate the rising number of foreign films that have made their way to the Hollywood remake side of the industry. Japanese horror films including The Ring from 2005, Dark Water also 2005, and The Grudge, which scared the life out of me back in 2004, have fared well in North America. However, Hollywood has a tendency to mess up a lot of these remakes as well. Thankfully, most of these foreign films, instead of being remade, are simply being released in their native language with subtitles, and they still make a huge impact. Movies like Parasite and Train to Busan and TV shows like Squid Game are prime examples of this. Look, first and foremost, Hollywood is an industry. And as in any other industry in a mass market, its success relies on the control of production resources and raw materials and on its access to mass distribution and marketing strategies. In this way, Hollywood has an enormous influence on the films to which the public has access. In the movie industry today, publicity and product are two sides of the same coin. Think of the DC films. Think of what has been happening with the release of the Snyder Cut of Justice League, right? That's kind of an example of the two sides of the same coin and the access the public has to these movies. Even films that get a lousy critical reception can do extremely well in ticket sales if their marketing campaigns manage to create enough hype. Similarly, two comparable films can produce very different results at the box office if they have been given different levels of publicity. This explains why the film What Women Want, produced by Paramount, starring Mel Gibson, brought in $33.6 million in its opening weekend, while a few months later, The Million Dollar Hotel, produced by independent studio Lionsgate, also starring Gibson, only brought in $29,483 during its opening weekend. The difference is night and day. On the next episode of the ongoing history of movies and television, we're going to take a break from the history of movies and start to dive into the history of the television and some of the iconic TV shows that first aired. As always, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I'll see you next time.